Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Rosh Hashanah 2014 marks the beginning of the year 5775 of the Jewish calendar. This episode, Why Be Anything, is the first sermon of our High Holiday series. On behalf of Kol Hadash, Lishana Tova. 130 years ago, a new language was born. It was called Esperanto. It had regular rules, no exceptions, simple grammar. This new language could be learned in one-tenth the time it takes to learn English. In its heyday, they would hold Esperanto conferences, Esperanto speeches, Esperanto poetry, Esperanto songs, and when the conference was over, the attendees would go back to speaking their native language, Yiddish. <laughs> now, Jews were not the only ones who spoke Esperanto, but they were very interested. Over the last 200 years, Jews have often been attracted to movements that promise to solve non-Jewish hostility and the dilemma of Jewish Maybe, these Jews thought, the solution to being different is not to convert and be something else. Maybe the solution is to eliminate difference altogether. Imagine life before the mythical Tower of Babel, or before our actual evolutionary exodus from East Africa, when all Homo sapiens then alive spoke one language, were one tribe, one humanity. A utopia recorded history has never seen, but many have imagined. The inventor of Esperanto was, no surprise, a Polish Jew, Ludwig Zamenhof. In his words, he put it, in Bialystok, where he grew up, the inhabitants were divided into four distinct elements, Russians, Poles, Germans, and Jews. Each of these spoke their own language and looked on all the others as enemies. In such a town, a sensitive nature feels more acutely than elsewhere the misery caused by language division and sees at every step that the diversity of languages is the most influential basis for the separation of the human family into groups of enemies. I was brought up as an idealist. I was taught that all people were brothers, while outside in the street, in every step, I felt that there were no people, only Russians, Poles, Germans, Jews, and so on. This was always a great torment to my infant mind, so I often said to myself that when I grew up, I would certainly destroy this evil. Zamenhof was a complete universalist. He even declined to join an organization of Jewish Esperantists. Zamenhof did not want to be a Jew, nor a Pole, nor a Russian. Zamenhof wanted to be only a human being, a member of the human family. Zamenhof died in 1917, but that's not the end of the story. Ludwig Zamenhof, internationalist, is buried in the main Warsaw Jewish Cemetery near the first chief rabbi of Warsaw, amid thousands of other Jews. As the Jewish-American sociologist Horace Callan put it in the same era, in his gendered language, men may change their clothes, their politics, their wives, their religions, their philosophies to a greater or lesser extent. They cannot change their grandfathers. <laughs> Every person lives many identities, humanity, ethnicity, family, philosophy, citizenship, gender, political persuasion, individuality. 
I was speaking with a wedding couple recently, and the non-Jewish bride expressed concern over signing a ketubah, a marriage agreement. She was worried that by signing this ketubah, she was losing who she was and becoming something else. And I said to her that when you get married, who you are changes by addition, not subtraction. She will still be who she was before, but now she will also be a part of her husband's family, appearing on his family tree, and her home will be connected to his family culture just as it will be to her family culture. The challenge to multiple identities is finding the balance among them or between them if they collide. One 19th century Jewish poet called for the Jew to be, quote, a man on the street and a Jew in his tent. In other words, accept a stark double identity to minimize the public difference between Jews and everyone else. And some would have extended that difference minimization to simply be an individual, be a universalist, be human above and beyond everything. Esperanto now, Esperanto tomorrow, Esperanto giant, forever. <laughs> we at Kohadash have made a different choice. We have chosen to be someone. We accept that we are something that we do not want to leave behind. Thus our presence here tonight, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of a Jewish New Year. Tomorrow morning we'll explore the specific choice of being Jewish. Tonight we have to answer a question before that question. Why be anything? There are reasonable reasons to leave an identity behind. Perhaps you fear persecution, or you sincerely desire to end conflict and division. Just because you were born X, you can still try to be Y, or choose no label at all. Thus the historic Jewish temptation to the universal, the Esperanto impulse. Example, in the 1870s, Felix Adler, son of a famous New York City reform rabbi, went to Germany for rabbinic studies, read too much Immanuel Kant, and started the ethical culture movement, which drew hundreds of New York area Jews with its emphasis on deed, not creed. It didn't matter what you believed if you acted ethically. And it was minus any ethnic, ritual, or cultural orientation. Now, outside of the Northeast, the population attracted to ethical culture was more mixed. But Jews were still significantly overrepresented, even more so in the New York area. Example number two. Communism long had a great appeal for Jews because it promised to end ethnic hatred through international worker solidarity. In the United States in 1947, the International Workers Order had 15 language sections. The Yiddish language section was 40% of the membership, when Jews were only 4% of the American population. For all that internationalism, however, it wasn't that simple. Leon Trotsky was born and left Bronstein. He left being Jewish for international socialism in his teens. But that didn't stop anti-Semites from using Trotsky's and Marx's Jewish origins to criticize communism, or stop Joseph Stalin from using Trotsky's Jewishness to expel and to murder him, and to persecute Soviet Jews in the name of universalism. Supposedly, the chief rabbi of Moscow said, Trotsky makes the revolution, the Bronsteins paid the bills. <laughs> the reality is that who we are is not only a function of our individual choices. You can change David Daniel Kaminsky to Danny Kay, but you cannot change your grandfather, those people in that culture that came before you. 
The memories your parents or your grandparents gave you of lighting Hanukkah candles or holding Passover seders will be a part of you until some science fiction future where you can erase the memories you don't want. I actually have no memory of either of my grandfathers. My father's father was shot by a burglar while my father was still in utero. And my mother's father died just before I turned three. But I know the stories. I have the pictures that look vaguely like me, and a lot like my parents. I am an heir. The universalist responds, that's internal, that's just emotional, the tyranny of memory. That can be overcome by strengthening the will and ignoring the guilt. Unfortunately, we ourselves are not the only arbiters of our identity. Society plays a role, and some features are inescapable. Consider the case of Barack Obama. He has one white parent and one black parent. Could he really choose to identify as white, as he has chosen and society has accepted his self-identification primarily as black? Under South African apartheid, there were several racial categories, including black, white, colored or mixed, Malay, Chinese, Indian, other Asian. People were racially classified by three factors, physical appearance, social acceptance, and individual descent. And you could petition a committee to change your racial identity. In 1984, 795 people were reclassified. 518 went from color to white, two whites became Chinese, and one white became Indian. 79 black Africans became colored, and five colored people became African. Ridiculous. But the universalists could argue that's what you get for trying to define borders and boundaries to separate humanity. Maybe better to just forget the whole thing? The Jewish experience? Well, there have been times in Jewish history when you could not leave your Jewishness behind, even by assimilation or even conversion. The Spanish Inquisition did not persecute self-identified Jews. Mel Brooks was wrong. <laughs> the Inquisition pursued the so-called new Christians, who had been Jewish and converted but were still suspect. They used a standard called the Biesa de Sangre, purity, cleanliness of the blood. In the 19th and early 20th century, the social snobs who excluded successful Jews from country clubs didn't care about their education, their diction, the Americanness of their names, or the shape of their noses. A Jew was a Jew. And we certainly know the racial anti-Semitism of the Nazi Holocaust, when hatred did not stop to check what you believe or which identity box you want. One Jewish grandparent could be enough. And the victims could not change their grandfathers in a tragic way. Gradually, Jews have been accepted as white, whatever that is. But you would not have to be crazy to draw the lesson that being anything different, alien, could be dangerous. And that difference is a source of conflict. You may remember the case about eight years ago of a senator from Virginia named George Allen, who was running for re-election. It came out during the campaign that his mother, who was from Tunisia, was, in fact, Jewish. She had kept it a secret from almost everyone. When a reporter asked him a very innocuous question of, is it true that your mother is, in fact, Jewish? Allen's testy response was, why are you going around casting aspersions on people because of their religion? And then the next day, after he had a chance to think about it, he had a very painful press conference where he said things like, 
<laughs> well, yes, my mother was Jewish, but she made really good pork chops. <laughs> His good boy identity was threatened by a Jewish mother in the family. But you can understand from her experience in Tunisia, with her father arrested, the family persecuted under the Holocaust, that her conclusion was, it's just too dangerous. Now, there are also positive reasons to identify with humanity as a whole. As Shakespeare's Shylock said, we are fed by the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer. Science, philosophy, art, can all educate and inspire any human of any background. On some level, it is crazy to divide the entire world's population into Jews and non-Jews. 0.2% versus 99.8%. Our tradition claimed that we were the chosen people, that all history revolved around us. But just as the world does not actually revolve around every three-year-old, it does not revolve around the Jewish people, or around any one people. When you are part of a small people like the Jews, it can be very tempting to expand your group identity beyond 0.2%. How about the international proletariat? Educated seekers of universal ethical culture? Pioneers of a global language? All true, and yet, even if we wanted, we do not have absolute freedom to choose who we are. We cannot choose our grandfathers, and we cannot fully determine how others see us. But now our individuality rebels. Who are they? Who are you to tell me what I cannot do, whom I can and cannot be? This rebel sees a slippery slope from group identity to group think, group responsibility, group limitations. How can I assert my autonomy, my individuality, if people think of me as a label first and as unique me second? This is the deep irony of a humanistic community. We tell you to think for yourselves. Make up your own mind. I dare you. If I am Jewish, am I implicated in anything any other Jew does? If I am part of a group, will they speak for me differently than they would have spoken for myself? Will the group expel me if I think for myself? If I challenge group consensus? Forget it, says the rebel. No groups for me. In the end, if we say that people are in charge of their own life, we had better meet them. If they choose to resign, we cannot stand in their way. But group identity is deeply rooted in the human psyche. Everything from family and neighborhood to sports team up to a cultural and philosophic community like the Kolkadash. The benefits from being together can be worth the challenges and limitations of getting along, the need to argue for one's perspective, or to gracefully accept if the group chooses another path. If we want the strength of mutual support, if we want a voice in the larger Jewish and human conversation, if we seek inspiration from both our roots and our shared commitments, then a label, a group, it may be. <clears throat> and sometimes a label can make all the difference. I heard a story recently about a family that was living in a house directly on the U.S.-Canadian border. And so it became very important to decide in which country this house was and whose citizenship the couple would accept. And so each side came and made their presentations, extolling the assets of Canada or United States allegiance. And finally, the 
couple gathered and discussed, came back and reported that they decided they would be Americans, United States citizens. And they were asked, how did you make this decision? And their response was, those Canadian winters are too cold. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at this differently. Do you love your family? Is there anything wrong with loving your family? Is there anything about loving your family that makes you unable to be good and decent to the other 99.999% of humanity? We have to avoid two extremes. On one end, there is loving your family above and beyond the humanity of anyone else. We call that the mafia. <laughs> they love the family, and they are terrible to humanity. On the other extreme, there is loving humanity more than those who gave you life and give you love. Karl Marx's family suffered terrible poverty, including the deaths of children in squalid conditions, while he spent his time in the British Library working at Das Kapital. Yes, you were allowed to have a family, and to love that family, and to love that family more than universal brotherhood, or at least as much. In my tenth year here with Kovadaj, I love my congregation more than ever, but I still love my family more than I love you. <laughs> if you can have a family of love and commitment, can you not extend that family to distant cousins, adopted relatives, even an ethnic community? The radical Rosa Luxemburg, born Jewish, responded to anti-Jewish pogroms by writing, I have no room in my heart for Jewish suffering. Why do you pester me with Jewish troubles? I feel closer to the wretched victims of the rubber plantations of Putumayo or the Negroes in Africa. I have no separate corner in my heart for the ghetto. Can you not feel for both? You can't be part of more than one family at once. Yours by birth, your partners by marriage, your ethnicity, even the human family. Remember the bride sighing the ketubah. One family does not replace the other, they exist simultaneously in you. One Jewish ex-communist put it very simply. He wrote, no one lives in the universe. There is no address that reads 175 Fairview Boulevard, the universe. Even the Universal Postal Union could not deliver mail to such an address. You live in a country, a state, a nation. There is no history of the universe. Universal history is the sum total of group histories, tribe, people, nationality, seen in their interconnections. Similarly, there is no simply human experience that can give rise simply to human values. For all these thousands of years, all human experience has been cast in the form of the limited group. An internationalist, thus, is not one who lives in an internation, in outer space, far, far out. He is an American internationalist, a Polish internationalist, a Ghanaian internationalist, or an Indian internationalist. They may converge, but they converge from different points. We here may be American Jewish internationalists, but to omit the American or the Jewish is to strip the internationalist of vital concrete meaning. The irony is that the more we understand where we live, the more we accept who we are, the more we learn who our grandfathers and our grandmothers were, the better we understand everyone else. Everyone comes from somewhere. 
If we drop difference for universalism, we won't understand or appreciate the vast majority of humanity that persists in being who they are. I do not want there to be only Applebee's. I want Chinese maker. I want drive through Mexican. I want Vietnamese Italian fusion cuisine. In that Warsaw Jewish cemetery, not far from Ludwig Zamenhof, the father of Esperanto, lies Yudlam at Paris, a giant of modern Yiddish literature. Paris also welcomed the wider world, but he appreciated the universal from a particular perspective. I am not proposing, he wrote, that we lock ourselves in a spiritual ghetto. We must leave it. But with our own soul, our own spiritual wealth, we must make exchanges, give and take, not beg. Ghetto means impotence. Interchange of culture is the only hope for human growth. Man, the complete man, we would say person, the complete person, will be the synthesis of all the very forms of national culture and experience. To take and continue to be oneself, that is the important thing. It is also difficult, especially for nations that are weak and not independent. That is why we must be more demanding with the Yiddish writer. He has something that is unique. He should not do what others have done. Leave the ghetto, see the world, yes, but with Jewish eyes. If I don't understand what it means to be myself, how can I understand when someone else wants to be who they are? The more I connect with my own culture, the more I appreciate the distinctiveness of Korean culture or Lebanese culture. Yes, we have something like that. A much better basis for dialogue. Then why are you so different from what I want you to be? Remember, demanding that other groups surrender who they are means that we impose our dominant culture on them. When 19th century white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, the WASPs, said, just be American, they really meant, be waspy like us. In our America, where whites will no longer be the majority, group identities will shift too. If people and peoples are already different, don't deny their difference and demand they vanish. Find a balance between what the former British chief rabbi called the dignity of difference and going over the deep end into chauvinism and division. Now, if I have sold you on the possibility, even the desirability of being something, you still have to answer, why be Jewish? <clears throat> Just because you decided to buy a car, now you have to choose which one. We will turn to this question tomorrow morning. But for those here tonight who consider themselves Jewish, or at least Jewish, <laughs> I want to ask you this. Why are you still Jewish? Not where did you come from, but why are you here, specifically here? On Yom Kippur, we'll explore more balancing our specific Judaism with our connection to universal humanity and human values, finding a way to celebrate culture while still affirming the rights of women, minorities, and the individual mind. 130 years ago, if you wanted a place in the world that minimized difference, you did not have to go further than the United States of America. Remember that metaphor for diversity? The melting pot. Everyone comes, and they are melted into something new. Are you at all surprised to hear the melting pot as a phrase was popularized in 1908 by a Jewish playwright in a play celebrating assimilation? Here is a key speech from that play called The Melting Pot. 
America is God's principle, the great melting pot where all the races of Europe are melting and reforming. Here you stand, good folk, think I, when I see them at Ellis Island. Here you stand in your 50 groups, your 50 languages and histories, and your 50 blood hatreds and rivalries. But you won't be long like that, brothers, for these are the fires of God you've come to. These are the fires of God. A fig for your feuds and vendettas, Germans and Frenchmen, Irishmen and Englishmen, Jews and Russians, into the crucible with you all. God is making the American. Now, you may know that those are all white Europeans. <laughs> but that's part of the blindness of the melting pot ideology. Lose what you are. Become what we want you to be. A full universalism denies the dignity of difference and diversity. Absolutely, we need common ground, common culture, common values, but not at the expense of who we are. A much better metaphor for the dignity of difference comes at the end from Horace Callan. We heard him say earlier that we can change a lot, but we cannot change our grandfathers. If that is the reality, and we love our family, and we celebrate our difference with even greater respect for others, because we know who we are, and they can be who they are, that we do not need to melt away. Callan's vision? A chorus of many voices, each singing a rather different tune, what must, what shall this cacophony become? A unison or a harmony? A unison or a harmony? Everyone singing the same note, or many notes coming together to sing a fuller anthem. To my ear, harmony is richer through diversity, a more beautiful world in many colors. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Kol Hadash podcast. For more information about humanistic Judaism, Kol Hadash Congregation, and Rabbi Shalom, visit our website, kolhadash.com. I'm Ken Burke, and thanks for listening.